Hi, this is Max Gross. I'm a second year law student at the University of Victoria in the JD program, and I'm one of your hosts for the UVic Law Podcast, Starry Indecisis, this season. So every year, the Starry Indecisis hosts do an intro episode where we introduce ourselves to you and tell you a little bit about the season, and we're going to do that again this year. But before that, there's an episode that we want to get out to you ASAP. You might have heard of the Dixon versus Vuntuk Gwich'in First Nation case that was at the Supreme Court of Canada recently. One of our other podcast hosts, Indy, had the chance to recently interview Krista Robertson, who was counsel for the Vuntuk Gwich'in First Nation at the Supreme Court of Canada. And we're expecting that that decision is going to come out anytime. So we wanted to get this to you before that comes out. You might have heard it's a case that has a lot of impacts on Indigenous legal sovereignty. It's a very interesting case, and without further ado, here is that interview. Hi everybody, my name is Indy, and on this episode of Starry and Decisis, we're going to look at an upcoming Supreme Court of Canada case that's called Dixon versus the Vantukwichin First Nations, uh, which has the potential to change the application of the Charter to Indigenous governments and rights. So I'm going to start by explaining the case, and then I'm going to introduce Krista Robertson, who is counsel for the Vantukwichin First Nation, which I'll be calling the VGFN from now on, and is also our guest for today. Uh, so this case was brought by Miss Dixon, who's a member of the VGFN, which is an Indigenous nation in the Yukon. The VGFN is a self-governing Indigenous nation, having negotiated and finalized a comprehensive lands claim agreement and self-government agreement with Canada and the Yukon. And under their final agreement and self-government agreement with Canada, the VGFN enacted their own constitution, which contains many similar rights to the Canadian constitution. The VGFN Constitution has a clause, which I'm going to call the residency requirement, which states that anyone who's elected to the VGFN Council who does not live on VGFN settlement land has to move within uh, that land within 14 days of being elected. Uh, And this means effectively living in Old Crow, which is the main community on uh, VGFN land. Miss Dixon lives in Whitehorse, which is about 800 kilometers from Old Crow, and wants to run for a place on the VGFN Council, but doesn't want to move back to Old Crow, um, which she would need to do if she's elected, because she has a job in Whitehorse and a son with medical problems who needs to live near a full-service hospital, which Old Crow does not have. Um, The VGFN isn't considering getting rid of its residency requirement because they consider it to be vital to maintaining a connection to their land and ensuring that the seat of VGFN government remains on VGFN land. Uh, Therefore, Ms. Dixon brought an action against them, claiming that the residency requirement infringes her Section 15.1 Charter Right to Equality by discriminating against her based on the prohibited ground of Aboriginal residency established in Corbiere. Uh, So there are three primary legal issues to be decided in this case, and we're just going to discuss them individually. The first being, uh, does the charter apply to the laws of an Indigenous nation at all? Um, And if so, does the residency requirement infringe mystics in Section 15 rights? And is that infringement justified under Section 1? And finally, does Section 25 of the charter shield the residency requirement from being declared of no force and effect if it were to infringe her equality rights? This case was argued before the Supreme Court of Canada last February, and we are waiting on their decision now. 
My guest today is Krista Robertson, who's one of the lawyers who represented the VGFN in all three levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. Krista is a UVic Law graduate and a partner at Mendel Pinder, and has been working with Indigenous communities since 2002. Welcome, Krista. Thank you, Indy. Uh, so the first issue in this case is whether the Charter applies to laws enacted by a self-governing Indigenous nation at all. Um, if it doesn't, then Ms. Dixon cannot bring a claim that the residency requirement violates her equality rights. So just to quickly review the governing test for when the Charter applies under Section 32 of the Charter, uh, Section 32 states that the Charter applies to the Government of Canada and to the Provincial Legislature. And courts have interpreted this to mean that the Charter applies under the Eldridge test, either uh, to everything that an entity does, if the entity is government in its very nature or substantially controlled by the government, or to a particular activity done by an entity if the activity itself is governmental in nature, even if the entity is not. So at issue here is whether the Charter applies to the residency requirement, as Indigenous nations are not included in the text of Section 32. In the past, the Charter has been found to apply to Indigenous nations um, on quite different facts, and Ms. Dixon argues that the VGFN's authority is derived from the agreements between the VGFN and Canada, and that the Charter applies because the agreement stated that it would. Uh, the Yukon Court of Appeal agreed, finding that the Charter applies to the residency requirement because the self-government agreement states that VGFN's laws must be uh, in conformity with the Constitution and that laws of general application will apply to the VGFN and because the final agreement states that VGFN citizens retain all their protections and rights as Canadians. Uh, so Krista, um, for the VGFN, why should the Charter not apply to the residency requirement? Well, I think you've done some of the work there for me laying that all out, so thank you. First and foremost, it's, it really is a practice, it was driven by the practical consideration that they wanted to preserve their right to make collective decisions regarding the fundamental rules of their government. Um, and in this case, the residency requirement that when you're elected, you need to relocate if you're not already living in, in Old Crow um, to, to Old Crow so that you can respect that the Constitution says the seat of the government will be there um, and you're in the community uh, dealing with local issues. Uh, there's a long, we'll get into Corbiere a little bit later, but as a practical matter there's been many, many challenges by individual members of nations to residency requirements, in mainly in federal court. This uh, case uniquely happened in the Yukon Supreme Court because that was the jurisdiction that was decided uh, under the land claim agreement. So in this case, it was the Yukon Supreme Court that was deciding it, the question. But in federal court, um, that court had a num many, many times over applied the charter to election codes uh, and struck down residency requirements on Section 15 equality challenges. So in this case, it was important, I think, to question the application of the Charter as a, as a premise. Also, it's, from my understanding, a relatively common thing for governments to require that the people that are on council reside within the territory? It is, and that is actually a strange evolution of the law, I think, in terms of the federal court's application of the Corbier decision, that it's created this anomaly where Indigenous governments have been disallowed from having a residency requirement when, as you said, just about every other government in Canada has one. So, for example, in the evidence, um, 
to, to sit on the city council in, in Whitehorse. Not only do you have to reside there, but you have to reside there for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, um, to, to run in, um, in the territorial government in the Yukon, again, you have to reside there for a certain period of time before you can even actually vote, let alone hold office. So wow. it's very common. And as I've said, we have this anomaly, I think, and we can trace it a little bit more in detail how the federal court had come to apply the Corbiere test, um, even in cases where custom election codes were at issue, to essentially um, disallow um, any kind of residency requirement. I think, too, it, it um, for Vantuk Gwich'in, it was really important. They have their own dispute resolution provisions in their own constitution, and so not having the charter apply created space for them to resolve their disputes in accordance with their constitution. Their land claim agreement provided uh, by the agreement of, of Canada and the Yukon and Buntuk Gwich'in that they would uh, that they would have a constitution that shall, the, the wording was shall, so it was an imperative, they, their constitution shall provide for um, for elections uh, and and for their self-government, and also that it shall provide for the protection of their the rights of their citizens, and a mechanism for challenge their citizens to challenge those laws when they interfere with with their fundamental rights. So, not having the charter apply, um, particularly when they had in their constitution a way for Ms. Dixon in this case to challenge uh, the residency requirement on the basis of within the four corners of the Vantagwichin constitution um, allowed them to develop their own um, laws uh, around around um, balancing her desires to participate in her government with the decisions of the of the general assembly in that case in um, setting that requirement in their constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ties into like one of the arguments that I really enjoyed in this case uh, was that the charter shouldn't apply because the VGFN have an inherent right of self-government that was recognized by Canada, not granted. Um, that's one of the things that I'm kind of hoping is taken up by the Supreme Court, because I noticed that the, the trial level judge, uh, Justice Veal, I believe, uh, did find that there was an inherent right to self-government, whereas the Court of Appeal was a little bit less clear on the source of their authority. Um, so the Supreme Court could take mm-hmm. it up if it was something they wanted to address. Mm-hmm. I think but both the lower courts said something along the lines of it's futile to try to trace the exact source of the self-government being exercised in this case. Um, and Vontek Wichin said it's it's not futile. It's it's important to do that. Mm-hmm. There really is just a fundamental problem with the logic of applying Section 32 to an Indigenous government who is exercising laws under its inherent authority, which in this case, I think the, the, the default is that it was, and the courts, in fact, did find... We, we can get into a little bit more uh, detail around just how how rooted um, that exercise of authority has to be in Section 35 jurisprudence. But but they're not an Indian Act band. Uh, we know that the courts have said if it's a band that is operating, uh, passing laws under the Indian Act, the charter would apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the case here. Under the land claim agreement arrangement, 
it's very clear that Fantukwitchen is no longer um, under the Indian Act in any way, uh, and and isn't in fact an Indian band anymore. It's a it's a unique uh, entity, and I think just the the very nature of treaty making between the Crown and Indigenous communities implies that the Crown recognizes that they're doing so on the basis that that the Indigenous group has an inherent authority and an ability to make treaties. Um, and of course, we have the law that is clear in Canada that that Indigenous societies pre-existed the colonial government uh, and uh, and and had their own laws and their own legal orders. So I think if you look at, you described a little bit the, the Eldridge test um, and the jurisprudence around Section 32. The problem, if you accepted the appellant's arguments around why Section 32 applies, is that it was the exercise of authority, the con- virtually the Constitution, the Vantagwitchin Constitution, um, is only enabled by legislation passed by Canada and the Yukon bringing these self-government agreements into effect. So their argument was really that they are still, in essence, a delegated authority, um, that they're not, ex- they're, they're not grounded in inherent authority. They're, they're operating in, in a, a delegated authority context, that they're a creature of statute, so to speak. Uh, and I think that... <laughs> The arguments that both parties put forward, Vantuk Gwichin saying if the court accepts that, that it's accepting that Vantuk Gwichin's a mere creature of statute and is only exercising delegated authority, um, that it, um, I don't think the court wanted to find that, but at the same time, the court wanted to find that the charter applied to them. Yeah. So perhaps just by saying that it's a futile exercise to have to worry or determine what the source of the self-government authority is, was a bit of an out for the difficult problem um, that the court had in grappling with these Section 32 arguments. Yeah, that's really interesting. It'll be interesting to see like what the Supreme Court makes of it, because it does seem like Section 32 evolved in a federalist federalist system with two like heads of power and hasn't been built to um, accommodate indigenous nations. And since the test is so focused on recognizing authority as being derived from one of the two, it doesn't like work very well when it comes to uh less clear sources of authority within the Canadian federal estate. So it'll be interesting for sure to see what the court makes of it. In your opinion, do you think that the Supreme Court is likely to take this opportunity to rule on whether the charter applies to the laws of indigenous nations generally, or are they more likely to confine their judgment to the facts of the case, like maybe based on the agreements or finding through branch two of Eldridge that the charter applies only to the residency requirement? Hmm. I hope they confine it just to this case. I think it. There were some early arguments made in the the judicial review phase that it it the court could and should actually decline to even exercise jurisdiction to hear it or at least um, defer the decision to Vantakwichen. Uh, there was an alternative argument that Ms. Dixon made um, in her pleadings that. Uh, that the residency requirement, so her her main argument is that the residency requirement infringed her charter rights, but alternatively, um, that the residency requirement was an infringement of her equality rights under the Vantagwitchin Constitution. Mm. 
So Von Tuckwitchen encouraged the court to decline to decide the charter matter and simply decide the issue within, as I said, the four corners of the Von Tuckwitchen Constitution, which I think would have been a better way for the court to show deference to the Von Tuckwitchen Constitution um, and, and the land claim agreement and the fact that the parties had mutually agreed that the Von Tuckwitchen Constitution would provide for the rights and freedoms of its citizens and and um, for dispute resolution um, in respect of those rights. So I um, I, I think it <laughs> it possibly should have just been a stone that was never turned over. I think you're mm-hmm. you're you're really correct that there is a, a serious hole in our constitution, uh, and and when the charter was brought into to law um, in 1982, everybody knew that. Um, there was serious concern uh, on the part of Indigenous communities and political organizations that bringing in the Charter would affect uh, their uniqueness and their way of life as Indigenous people. Um, and, um, and that's, I think, in large reason why we have Section 25 in there. Um, but there was, I think you have to really go back and look back to the 80s, um, and not everybody is aware of this, probably most law students would be, but that there was other sections um, of the Charter that mandated, or of the Constitution that mandated constitutional conferences mm-hmm. after um, the Charter came into place that would require uh, the indigenous governments, the provincial and territorial governments, and the federal governments to meet and grapple with this question that we have section, we have 91 and we have 92 and we have this division of power. And it can't simply be that all indigenous government authority is somehow under 9124. It just just can't work when you're talking about pre-existing societies with their own laws. Um, and those constitutional conferences failed. Uh, we had this leading up to the Charlottetown Accord at the end, and there was provisions in the Charlottetown Accord that provided for how we would have this third order of government in our in our constitution, um, and we just simply don't. We have Section 35, and a lot of things have happened within Section 35, but there is a shortage of law on self-government and what that means as a section 35 right there's quite a shortage of law actually so there is uh, so just going back to your question um how broad would the the court go um that's why i i hope that they that's one reason i hope that they um choose to look at it narrowly because i think it is fundamentally a question that should be negotiated by Indigenous governments. And that's, I think, in this case, what what we're saying Bantukwichin did. They, The government sat down and they negotiated a self-government agreement. There's also legal reasons to do it. Um, what, for example, as you said, Justice Vail found very broadly that the Charter applied to Bantukwichin constitution, laws, all Bantukwichin laws. Um, and the Court of Appeal narrowed that and said, no, we should just look at the law at issue. And as you as you referenced earlier in in the in the section thirty two jurisprudence, the courts have found well there may be an entity that's that's not a parliament or a legislature may may be entirely covered by the charter depending on its nature, 
Um, but you can't it can't just be governmental in nature. It has to be, at least in our view, it has to be doing something that is tethered to the Section 32 Parliament or legislature kind of powers. Section meaning the Section 32 that that says that Parliament legislatures are bound by the Charter. So uh, the this the Court of Appeal narrowed it significantly to the law, just the law at issue, and I think that was appropriate. I think also this is um this is in in my view a pretty easy case for the court to say just on the facts. Um, we have a self-government agreement and a land claim agreement where the parties have decided Vantekwitchen will be self-governing, will have its own constitution, um, provide for the fundamental rights of its citizens and and ways uh, to protect those rights. So mm-hmm. in this case, I, I am hopeful that the court decides to um, focus on the facts in this case. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely, there's many pathways for them to choose to focus on the facts. I believe one of the justices actually during Miss Dixon's oral submissions even indicated that she'd be better off trying to stick to branch two rather than trying to bring the entire like government structure into play. The issue of the charter applying because it was agreed to between the parties. Uh, Justice Rowe um, expressed, I think, maybe a little bit of discomfort with that. I could be reading into it um, because he kind of pointed out that is it even open for the government of Canada to dis- decide when the charter applies? Like, if it, they can contract into it, can't they contract out of the charter applying? So I'm in- I'm interested to see whether the Supreme Court gives us any sort of ruling on um, on whether that is or is not something that the government is allowed to do at all. Um. <laughs> it's an interesting question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing uh, curveballs at you. <laughs> I, I think that um, the what what we know and what the court had to grapple with was that the land claim agreement was silent on that. Mm-hmm. And we know if you compare it to other modern land claim agreements that happened shortly after, for instance, the Nishka Agreement, all, well, in BC, all agreements thereafter, really self-government agreements, expressly state that the charter applies to the government, the Nishka government, for example, in that case. Uh, and the evidence in the Vantuk-Gwitching case is that the, the subject was certainly discussed uh, in the negotiation of the land claim agreement, and no agreement was reached. Mm-hmm. That Vantuk, which in espre- expressly said they didn't want the charter to apply and they didn't feel it should apply. So uh, it was, but there is some provisions that were subject to a lot of argument in the land claim agreement, for instance, that the land claim agreement is conforms with the Constitution of Canada. But does that can that be taken to say there was agreement that the charter applied? I I don't think so. So I guess that the the parties at the time to reach an agreement decided to be silent on it um, and perhaps left everyone to preserve their positions. Yeah, <laughs> and definitely would give um, an avenue to avoid having to have the court make such a like fundamental decision that really should be negotiated between the parties and the government. Yes. Um, if the Supreme Court did rule that the Charter never applies to the laws of Indigenous nations, do you think that there's a risk of a constitutional gap for nations that, unlike the VGFN, don't have their own constitutions? Well, I, I don't think the court would rule the Charter never applies mm-hmm. to the laws of Indigenous nations. As we discussed earlier, it does apply to bans exercising authority under the Indian Act. Very true. Um, 
so there certainly needs to be some element of the inherent self-government right. Um, I think that in terms of the gap, and as we, we know in this case, there isn't a gap, I think that we should resist starting with the assumption that if the Charter didn't apply, that Indigenous governments could or would ignore the basic human rights of their citizens. Mm-hmm. I think we could start with the assumption that Indigenous societies have long-standing, ancient, complex legal orders <laughs> that govern how people live together. Um, and we can acknowledge the biggest impact on basic human rights on Indigenous people as being colonialism <laughs> so far. <laughs> uh, and I think that Indigenous societies today who are rebuilding their self-government and their legal orders are not doing it in a vacuum. Uh, there's an international context of human rights. Many Indigenous communities uphold UNDRIP, which, of course, protects their collective rights to self-government, um, but also does uh, uphold individual rights and the protection of individual freedoms of Indigenous peoples. So I think that, I think the the knee-jerk reaction is there would be a, a vacuum or a void um, that would lead to human rights um, being ignored by Indigenous governments is extremely low. Uh, and I also think that, and it may not need to be solved in this case, I don't think it does need to be solved in this case, but I, I think that if an Indigenous government was to pass a law that's arbitrarily discriminatory, it had no valid objective or connection to a traditional practice, I think there would be a remedy. Yeah, it might just have to be something that the law develops as it as it does. Okay, thank you. Uh, so turning away from Section 32 into Section 15, uh, if the court does find that the charter applies, they'll then consider whether the requirement that Miss Dixon relocate to Old Crow within 14 days if she is elected to council infringes her Section 15 right to equality, and if so, whether the infringement is justified under Section 1 as a reasonable limit on that right. Potentially, that part wasn't actually fully discussed, I think, at either level of court, or fully acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to quickly review the two governing tests. So under Section 15, a law violates a person's equality rights if it draws a distinction between groups of people based on prohibited or analogous grounds, and that distinction imposes a burden or denies a benefit in a way that reinforces, perpetuates, or exacerbates disadvantage. Um, And then under Section 1, even if a charter right is infringed by a law, the infringement could still be justified as a reasonable limit in a free and democratic society. So the Supreme Court uh, previously held in Corbiere that Aboriginal residence, meaning whether somebody lives on or off of a reserve, is an analogous ground for the sake of Section 15. Uh, Miss Dixon argues that this precedent applies in this case, and to some degree, both levels of court have agreed, uh, with the Court of Appeal finding that the residency requirement infringes Section 15 by making Miss Dixon choose between serving on council and exercising her political rights and living outside of Old Crow. Uh, so why should the Supreme Court decline to follow Corbier's precedent that original residence is an analogous ground for the sake of Section 15? Vantuck mm-hmm. Gwichin said at the hearing that they shouldn't be forced to wear the stain of the, <laughs> of the Crown's discriminatory provisions in the Indian Act, which I think 
is what they would be doing if we were to follow Corbier here. Corbier was such a different context. Corbier came about because there was a provision of the Indian Act that said as soon as a member of a band moves off reserve that they're disenfranchised. In fact, essentially, they, they're totally disenfranchised. They mm-hmm. can't, not only can they not hold office, they can't actually even vote in elections. And that was what was at issue at Corbier. Um, that's, that's not the issue here. Um, the issue here is, well, first of all, any Vantagwitchin member can can vote in in Vantagwitchin elections, regardless of where they live. So it's it's um, it's it's about holding office. Uh, after Corbier, the federal court, which is the the usual court that decides cases with respect to the Indian Act or custom election codes um, that bands may implement. Um, ended up applying Corbier to situations of holding office, so not just to voting. So they took this term that the Supreme, this analogous ground that the Supreme Court found in Corbier, this aboriginality residence, and said, well, that's because it's an analogous ground, um, we have to apply that now to holding office. And then in turn, carried on in subsequent cases to apply that analogous ground to, as I said, to bans, not just not just holding elections under the Indian Act regulations, but also who were holding elections under their own custom codes, mm. um, which is, which is a, it's allowed under the Indian Act, essentially. There, there, there's still some, under a custom election code, different from, from Muntik, which, and there's still those codes are still somewhat tethered to the Indian Act. Um, but nonetheless, the court applied Corbier really expansively, that that um, analogous ground of Aboriginal, Aboriginality residence. And it's a kind of a funny term. Um, Justice Earl Dubay, in the in her dissent in Corbier, said um, it's it's only the complete exclusion of ban members from voting that really is offside the charter. And I think that's important. It's the complete exclusion, and that's what it was in that case. Um, in the Vantukwichin case, there isn't a complete exclusion at all. The evidence of Vantukwichin was that there's many, many ways for citizens to participate in their government. First of all, they are automatically members of the General Assembly, and that is the body that makes amendments to their constitution, adopted their constitution in the first place. There's various government bodies, committees that citizens can sit on. As I said, they can vote regardless of their residency and they can they can be nominated and run for election if they reside outside of the territory. It's only that they need to relocate. And you noted uh, Justice Vale struck down the 14 days that was the <laughs> and said that it was arbitrary uh, and the court of appeal returned that and said like we're the shield is the shield and and yeah. uh, but um, so they so you can so it's a it's a it's it's quite narrow um, in terms of the restriction and and there was just good reason um, that the general assembly and the Vantuk, which in, collective um, had in deciding that 
they wanted their seat of government to be in Old Crow. It's it's very rooted. It, it, it's so different. It was such a completely different context where you have the Indian Act and a colonial government simply Im- imposing election rules on Indigenous communities. Here you have a community in a deliberative assembly determining what their self-government rules will be and deciding that in the face of so many pressures that have separated them from their land, whether it's residential school, Indian Act government and being governed from Ottawa by a distant government, uh, just actual land taking, that it was really important for them to be rooted in their land as part of their enduring self-government and self-determination. So the, these are some of the reasons uh, why we're in a... It, it's just really apples and oranges in my mind. Yeah, so the, the courts have essentially analogized to the analogous ground and expanded it out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's become an anomaly in the law because, as as we were saying, no other government has been held to this <laughs> standard where you're virtually not allowed to have a residency requirement. On the contrary, uh, residency requirements are common. And so this is how I think the, the, the application of Corbiere has become strained. And I'm very glad uh, that this case has given the courts an opportunity to take a new look at that. Yeah, because even um, like beyond Corvier on branch two, it just doesn't cause disadvantage in the same way as on the facts of Corvier. Yes, um, and 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 certainly uh, delving into the section fifteen arguments, um, which Antiquitian says section twenty five should should if if the charter applies, mm-hmm. <laughs> section twenty five should operate as a shield and and avoid all of that because it is it is. Uh, it is a, a form of assimilation um, in, a, in and of itself to require a nation to defend its laws. And, and, mm-hmm. and the going through of a Section 15 analysis, as you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an elaborate analysis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, um, in this case, though, and, and uh, what, what Justice Vale found uh, was that Section 15 wasn't actually engaged, that it wasn't, in fact, discriminatory in its intent. The provision wasn't discriminatory in its intent. And I don't think we need to go into deep into the Section 15 analysis. But yes, in in this case, um, I think that not only is, is it um, a very different context, but I think that if you look at the purpose and the context of a whole of the whole context of the residency requirement that there is no intention for it to be discriminatory and it doesn't suggest that Vantikwichin citizens who are not living within the territory are somehow less worthy or less valuable mm-hmm. it simply says we want you to live on <laughs> in our <laughs> land if you're going to hold office yeah, which makes sense. I enjoyed Justice Veal's um, reasons for, uh, like, when he struck down just the 14-day requirement, I was reading the Miss Dixon's factum to the Supreme Court, and there's a sentence she explains that and then just says, neither party asked for this. I was like, excellent. Um, okay, so moving now to Section 25, I think this is the most interesting issue in this mm. case. Actually, it's funny. I um, So I think I mentioned this to you, but this case was half of our first-year constitutional law final exam if for the current three L's. 
Um, and I reached out to you because I thought it was so interesting, the Section 32 element and whether the charter could apply, uh, because we were actually told in that class not to consider Section 25. So in preparing for this interview, I realized that this is actually the much bigger and more interesting issue, uh, which is funny because I had no idea that it was even at play in the case originally. But yeah, so the most interesting issue is Section 25 and how it applies to charter claims against Indigenous nations. So Section 25 states that charter guarantees, uh, quoting, shall not be construed as to abrogate or derogate from any Aboriginal treaty or other right or freedom that pertains to the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty about how Section 25 should be interpreted and applied. And so far, the Supreme Court of Canada hasn't ruled definitively on it. I believe there's one orbiter case, but no uh, definitive rules. Um, and from my understanding, there are two schools of thought. One being that Section 25 is a complete shield for Aboriginal rights, so that if an Indigenous law is found to violate mystics' equality rights, Section 25 would shield it, and the law could continue to be in effect uh, notwithstanding the violation. And then the second school being that Section 25 is just an interpretive aid to help guide uh, a court in balancing competing rights, but doesn't necessarily shield the law from being of no force and effect. And instead, the right can be read down or modified to avoid the conflict, or I believe Ms. Dixon suggested it should inform the Section 1 analysis, something along those lines. Uh, so both lower courts prefer the interpretation that Section 25 is a complete shield, meaning that the residency requirement uh, did infringe Ms. Dixon's equality rights um, at the court of appeal level anyways, but continues to be in effect because uh, Section 25 shields it. And uh, the Supreme Court now has the opportunity to give a definitive ruling on whether Section 25 is a shield or interpretive aid, as well as what qualifies as an other right or freedom protected by Section 25, um, and maybe even a framework for applying it, which would be exciting. Uh, so Miss Dixon is now arguing that the residency requirement is not an other right or freedom protected by Section 25. Uh, that Section 25 is meant to protect Aboriginal rights from the Canadian state rather than from uh, Indigenous nations, and that Section 25 should be an interpretive aid rather than a complete shield. Uh, so why should Section 25 operate as a shield rather than as an interpretive aid? I think it's critical that it operates as a shield, even just in how you described it. You said the courts found the provision to be discriminatory, but it was shielded. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a judgment on Von Tegwitchen's laws, uh, which Von doesn't feel are discriminatory. Yeah. Uh, Naomi Metallic has an excellent article um, that talks about checking our attachment to the charter. <laughs> <laughs> and she engages in that question about how having uh, having a, another legal system uh, make judgment uh, on your laws is is inherently um, discriminatory and offensive and fraught. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I, what Von Tegwitchen argued is it's the test is uh, if any of those, it's a, it's, it's a presumption, basically, if, you, if there's if there's a Section 35 right on a on a prima facie basis, a Section 35 right that's engaged, we can get into the other rights a little bit more, <laughs> um, what that means. But you're correct in that the the wording in Section 25 is broader than Section 35 in that it it protects other rights in addition to what we 
know and love as the suite of Section 35 rights. Uh, but the once the, there's a presumption that once those rights are engaged uh, and there is any potential for an abrogation or a derogation, that it's it's a, it, it, the wording does say it shall, it shall not. Mm-hmm. It's a mandatory provision and the shield comes up uh, and and shields that law. It's um, the, I think that I think that the Court of Appeal said it very well uh, in in saying that, if you get into an interpretive aid, uh, you just risk watering down the right. You get into into a balancing, and you and you get into an inevitable reading down or watering down of the right that the shield is meant to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, they also talk about it's the order, the order of events, um, and so, for for example, the lower court, that Justice Vale. Um, first did the equality test and then looked at the shield. Um, and and as you said, there's a lot of discussion about frameworks and the right order of things. Um, and and the Court of Appeals said, I think rightly is, if you, if you, this is a little bit different than the balancing question, but it, it, it goes to the order and, it, and how things can just get muddy <laughs> if you don't just simply apply a shield as soon as a right is engaged that would be abrogated or derogated if you get into start getting weaving in the section 15 or the section 1 test things just get muddy so they said first of all in terms of the order let's look at the 25 test first because there's no point in getting into a whole six section 15 um, analysis if it just ends up being moot so you really should start so that's the, the <laughs> fundamental thing is that the shield is the shield um, I think so. Uh, the other part is just the expense and uncertainty of of indigenous communities who are trying to reinvigorate their indigenous legal orders. I mean, if you think of your a lawyer advising a community developing a election code or a governance code. Well, maybe you can't have that because. We're not sure if Section 15 could apply. And it's not just about residency. Um, it may be that it, it may be a system where um, there's some heredita- hereditary um, aspect. So you have to be part of a family group to hold certain positions or whatever it might be. You have to start, the nation has to start second-guessing and questioning and essentially going through a charter analysis. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's so uncertain. Um, and um, I think it, it creates a chill. And I think if, you, if, you, if the nation wants to avoid an endless series of expensive charter challenges, it's probably just going to have to err on the side of total charter compliance, which then would be... Um, would would stifle it, I think, um, and it, I think it would be infringing of their of their traditional governance systems. So those are some of the reasons, um, I think, good reasons why it's important that the shield be the shield, and we don't get into any kind of balancing, um, which could lead to not only a watering down, but a significant um, um, extra expense and complexity that really isn't. I don't think mandated by the wording of section 25. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like as a lawyer on this case trying to advise in advance. Like, well, the charter might apply. And if it does, then Section 15 might be engaged, but it might be justified under Section 1. And then Section 25 could come in and let's yeah. change everything. Well, and for 20 years, I've been advising different communities on governance codes. And they're always surprised and angry <laughs> when told by a lawyer, oh, no, you can't have a residency requirement mm -hmm. because that would offend the charter and it likely would be struck down. And people are surprised and mad to hear that. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that it should always be a shield? Or are there any situations where you think that it should be an interpretive aid or could be? I think Miss Dixon has pointed out that like other constitutional and charter rights, they're not absolute. They can be justified through Section 1, through the Sparrow Test. Mm -hmm. I think I think there's other, there's certainly precedent within the charter for a shield approach. I think arguably Section 15.2, the ameliorative purpose, is a shield yeah. by all, for all practical purposes. Um, if it's an ameliorative purpose, it's that's fine. You don't go further. Um, Section 29 is another example. That's the provision around uh, denominational schools. Um, and the courts have interpreted that as being a shield to charter challenges. So I don't think the shield is unprecedented. Um, and... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't actually think that there are cases where it should be an interpretive aid. I think. I think for clarity, it's it's better um, at the front end to be clear um, as to when the shield applies. It may be a higher bar. Uh, it's not easy to say um, necessarily um, that you're entitled to the protection of Section 25. Um, and I would prefer that the uh, the test be there, I think, than mm -hmm. the interpretive lens. I, I recall Justice Rowe when when Canada's uh, counsel put up an elaborate diagram setting out <laughs> saw that. section section twenty five as an interpretive lens. He commented as it was like nailing jello to a wall. Yeah. So I think that it just it shows that whenever you try to get into an interpretive framework, you just get into trouble. Yeah, if you open the door for it to ever be interpretive, you're going to end up always questioning whether it should be interpretive, for sure. Exactly. Um, so diving into the other rights and freedoms, um, what would you think should be included within other rights and freedoms that Section 25 protects, it being broader than um, Section 35 and treaty rights, right, in the text? Mm -hmm. In the Ventuk-Witchin case, it was argued uh, that the other right or freedom in the in this case was their self-government agreement mm -hmm. because their self-government agreement by agreement of the parties wasn't actually constitutionally protected they expressly said that the self-government agreement wasn't a section wasn't protected by section 35 in a way that the final land claim agreement the final um, agreement was the final agreement which was constitutionally which is constitutionally protected enabled or required the negotiation of a self-government agreement, so they were very linked. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, Vantuk Gwich'in did, did argue as an alternative that if, if the charter applied and, and if, um, if the self-government agreement wasn't, if, if the right wasn't a Section 35, right, an inherent right that was protected by Section 35, either by the treaty or Section 35 itself, that that the self-government agreement is 
would clearly be in the category of an other right or freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I think, a good example. And some of the interveners did point to um, self-government agreements as being a, a good example of an other right or freedom. I think it's it's case by case. Um, I think that partly at the time Section 25 was came into law, was developed and came into law, Section the Section 35 jurisprudence wasn't developed um, because they came into law at the same time, and um, and so there was there's still reference in Section 25 to the proclamation and other rights, and I think it, at the time it was partly the wording was used because it was just a there was a lot of there was a lack of clarity around what self-government rights were or what what rights should be shielded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think there's one of the courts, the BC courts, had said that the selection of, of one's leaders would be manifestly uh, a Section 35 right. Um, and I agree with that. But I think that, um, as I said, we, ha- we have very little jurisprudence on what what is the dimension of, of, of self-government rights within Section 35. I think that I think that the selection of, of leaders and uh, the rules for self-government would would clearly fall within other rights and freedoms. Some parties said that um, there's a there was reference to constitutional. I think the CAP decision as well, um, as you referred to earlier, it was in Obiter where Section 35 was discussed at length, though um, that that um, those other rights or freedoms would have to be of a constitutional nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the appellant's arguments I've just led back to it had to be a, a proven Section 35 right, which I don't agree with. <laughs> um, but I think there has to be, so it has to, it's unclear, I think, but, and I think it's, um, I think like Section 35, it's a, it's a box that can be filled over time. Yeah, yeah, the court doesn't need to decide the entirety of the box right now. It's easy to expand it to self-government agreements without needing to to keep going. Exactly. How would you like to see courts address the fact that they'll need to assess whether such a right exists without like without it being proven, I guess essentially. Or maybe there does need to be a way to prove it in the way that section 35 rights are. Well, I think that we can we can look at, for example, the Haida case and all of the law that's developed around having a prima facie right, mm-hmm. and that's what was urged in this case is to, to for the court to look on a prima facie basis, and I think that's a good way to do it. Yeah, um, if that's what you're asking, I think it is. Yes, <laughs> definitely less. Um, like it's, I think I would think desirable not to have a super strict test that becomes this huge barrier for Indigenous nations in bringing cases. Um, yeah, and ideally, as self-government agreements are negotiated going forward, or or modern um, modern land claim agreements, that the parties might actually specify in the agreement so they're clear. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, so for this last section of our episode, um, I was going to turn more towards what this experience was like as counsel. Uh, so I was wondering what detail of this case do you think is very important but often overlooked, like either by the courts or by the public or other lawyers? Well, I think what what we were talking about before, this this double standard that's that that's come into being over the last 20 years because of Corbier mm-hmm. uh, in Canada uh, that Indigenous communities are 
essentially disallowed from having the residency requirement, which is pretty standard. I don't think people are, are that well aware of that. Uh, I think also the other part we mentioned that really there was this unfinished business in our constitution. I think we, f- we focus very much on Section 35 and think that it, that, um, it can be the answer for reconciliation or that it's where reconciliation occurs. But I think that self-government is indigenous self-government or indigenous or having a a multi-jural Canada. Um, It really was left out um, of our constitution when we repatriated and brought the charter in. And that was acknowledged by all the parties in these mandated constitutional conferences that were supposed to have negotiated that and and figure it out. So I think that the case really is interesting to people because it's raised some issues that have been dormant a long time. So um, mm-hmm. or maybe just not answered properly, um, if at all. For for example. Sh- does the charter apply to Indigenous government? Should it apply? <laughs> what aspects does it apply? And why should it apply? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These are questions that I think haven't been grappled with. And, and also, I think Section 25, uh, early on in the case management conference, uh, we spoke about, oh, this Section 25 is at issue. It, and the, uh, the case management judge said, do you mean Section 35? <laughs> no, no, Section 25. I think a lot of people don't even know we have Section 25. It's like the mark of an underdeveloped. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's very little law on it. So I think that um, I uh, I think Section 25 has been overlooked as a as a tool. It's It's been argued from time to time as an interpretive aid, and the courts have been kind of not really engaged with it. Um, so I think that... Um, yeah, the this the significance of Section Twenty Five, um, and uh, and how it's been overlooked, I think, is is um, an interesting aspect of this case. That's uh, that's definitely been my experience so far. Every person I've told about this case, I've started to explain Section Twenty Five, and they go, well, "I've never heard of that." Yeah, like, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll listen to the podcast and you'll hear more. <laughs> <laughs> so, for all the all the law students out there who dream of someday going to the Supreme Court. Uh, is there something that surprised you about bringing a court to the Supreme Court of Canada? A case to the Supreme Court of Canada? Well, in this case, it really struck me just what a difficult job these judges have. Mm-hmm. Um, that they are only human, like the rest of us, <laughs> and that they don't necessarily have the law to simply apply. That they do actually have to make up law <laughs> to some extent um, of course drawing on the constitutional principles that we have and there's a lot of unwritten constitutional principles that they can draw on in their jurisprudence but I think that they it really struck me what a difficult decision they have to make here another interesting part about this case in particular and say it surprised me, but I think is remarkable, is that it was all of the submissions in the Supreme Court of Canada were made by um, a Vantagwichan member. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stanek is himself a member of Vantagwichan. And in his submissions, he was, the terminology he was using was 
our laws mm -hmm. and our legal orders and our general assembly. And I think that was quite jarring for the court. <laughs> uh, there was some debate if he should distance himself and use third-party language. Uh, but he felt strongly that, it, that he shouldn't. And I think he was very incorrect in that. I, I think mm -hmm. that it, it really um, made the court have to grapple very directly with the impact of their decision um, on Indigenous communities, Indigenous people, and Indigenous legal orders. And I think it was just fantastic because it uh, um, is just wonderful to have an Indigenous lawyer from the community uh, that was whose laws were at issue uh, making the submissions. I agree. Yeah, from watching the uh, the broadcast, I've got to say he's a very powerful oral advocate. He did a great job. He did. I say with my no experience as an oral advocate, but no, he was my wonderful. Eye. Yeah, and um, he spoke from the heart and and from authority. Yeah, and I think that really was compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so finally. Um, what, if anything, do you think that this case says about the contrasting philosophies of Indigenous rights, which are often collective, and uh, individual rights protected by the Charter, which I think you noted earlier, we have this tendency to cling to the Charter and this idea of individual rights in Canadian society? Mm. I'm not sure that we need to see things in that dichotomy. Mm -hmm. I think that as much as, I, and I know there's been many academic articles written, uh, especially early, early on after the Charter uh, came into force, around kind of a philosophical difference or how it might bump up against um, Indigenous worldviews that, that privilege the collective over the individual. But I think in, when you look at it more closely, our charter, for one thing, certainly also privileges collective rights in in many ways. Um, mm. There's reasonable limits. There's I, I think it, I think that there's within our charter there's a balance there as well um, of of uh, collective and individual rights. And I think in Indigenous communities it's the same. Um, so I would resist, and I know that you're not doing this um, um, to say, and and to the extent that you might say that. As a generalization, Indigenous communities um, privilege the collective over Indigenous or individual rights, I should say. Uh, I don't think that, I think that there's a balance as well there. Um, and I think Vantagwichin is, is a case in point. They, their constitution provides for significantly uh, the protection of individual rights, but also the collective rights. So. I think um, I'm not sure that the there is such a contrast, mm -hmm. and there is even really such a difference um, of of a Eurocentric legal system and and indigenous legal systems. I think that both of them balance those those two values. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Krista, and thank you everybody for listening. Thanks for having me.